It's Muppeturgy with a very special episode about the Elka Zummer episode of The Muppet Show. Well done. Yeah. I have been doing German and Duolingo for many years at this point. Sehr gut. Huzzah und wunderbar. Welcome back, everyone. We're so glad you're here. I'm David Levy. Here with me today are... Christy Bauer. Michal Richardson. And Adam Grossworth. I have a feeling that we have perhaps misunderstood the question. So I have an embarrassing correction for something that I said. Uh, and it's really only embarrassing to my 12-year-old self. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so in the Danny Kaye episode, I, I spoke a little too quickly, and I said that Paul Nicholas was the original magical Mr. Mistopheles and Cats. And what I meant to say was he was the originator of the song Magical Mr. Mistopheles, by which I meant he was the original Rum Tum Tugger. So to my 12-year-old self, I apologize. I am mortified for her. <laughs> it does make more sense. I didn't question it at the time, but just with the dancing and everything, that, that makes more sense. Yeah. In the Leslie Uggams episode, I said Miss Piggy was wearing black stockings, and they were actually fishnets, and I regret the error. <laughs> Good clarification. I mean, they are still technically black well, stockings. yes, but I, I, yes, they're not like, you know. They're not nylons. Or nylons, like I was imagining. Um, <laughs> we also had a lengthy conversation in that episode about how Big Bird being backstage messed with the size of the set. Uh, some weeks I make the gifts before we record, and some weeks I do it after. This was an after week, and I noticed, along with Miss Piggy's fishnets, uh, that Kermit's desk had been removed in that scene to allow them to get that low angle shot. And uh, that's a really essential part of what makes the forced perspective illusion in that uh, in the backstage set work. So that's neat, uh, and a key part of why it looked so weird. And why Big Bird looks like a giant, terrifying kaiju. Exactly. <laughs> if the desk had been there, uh, I mean, Big Bird probably, I don't know, Big Bird still would have screwed it up, but I think the desk might have helped. Give me shekels, give me pesos, let me see their smiling pesos. Money, 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 money. In case you haven't heard, Muppeturgy now has merch. If you go to muppeturgy.com slash store, we've got all kinds of wild and wacky things, mostly involving our various silly catchphrases and in-jokes. And there, there's a lot to love. There's shirts, there's stickers. You can get a mug. You can get a onesie for your baby. Very appropriate for uh, this week. Uh <laughs> hey, why would I want to buy Muppeturgy merch? Oh, just for the halibut. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> also, you'll help support the podcast. Yes. <laughs> yeah, we get a dollar or two for every something something that you buy. Also, just yeah. for the halibut. Yeah. And we now have a Just for the Halibut shirt, in fact. And if you use the link at com slash store, you can buy anything at TeePublic and help support your beloved Muppeturgy podcast. So head on over there. Here is a Muppet News flash. We are here this week to talk about Season 3, Episode 19 of The Muppet Show. It was produced the week of December 12th, 1978, and it aired very soon after, on January 29th, 1979, in New York, almost 44 years to the day that we are releasing this episode of the podcast. That almost never happens. It was number 16 in the air order between Spike Milligan and Danny Kaye, two of our favorites. <laughs> oh, boy. People are going to start to think that we hate the Muppet Show, you guys. <laughs> well, after we watched this episode, Keith was like, "Was this the one that that you warned me was going to be bad?" I was like, "The one." <laughs> oh, <wow. laughs> 
Okay. Well, uh, in case you're a newish listener, I do most of my research for this using the New York Times archives and ultimate70s.com. Ultimate 70s has the news that actually happened on this day, and the Times has the morning edition, so it's mostly stuff that happened the day before. And I just thought this week was a particularly good reminder of how the past worked, because according to the paper, this was a very slow news day, but there were actually a couple of really big stories, like of you know things that we remember now, uh, 44 years later. Uh, you just got the news a lot slower in 1979 without push notifications and whatnot. Um, so... Uh, from Ultimate 70s, Patty Hearst's seven-year prison sentence was commuted by President Carter on recommendation of the Justice Department. Miss Hearst, you may remember, was convicted in 1976 of taking part in a bank robbery by armed members of the self-styled Symbionese Liberation Army, which kidnapped her a month earlier. This is like one of those stories I actually know nothing about except the name Patty Hearst that is like you know, forever infamous. Yeah, same. I feel like I should watch a bad TV movie about it or something. I'm sure there is one. Former vice president, former New York governor, and I assume still current billionaire at the time, Nelson Rockefeller, has died. Top-level American-Chinese talks began at the White House between President Carter and Deputy Prime Minister Teng Xiaoping. Uh, Forgive me if I am pronouncing that totally incorrectly. Uh, The German, I can do. The Chinese, not so much. Uh, Richard Nixon attended the dinner in honor of the Chinese leader, and his appearance in the White House for the first time since he resigned under threat of impeachment has generated controversy. And the Ayatollah Khomeini has returned to Iran from exile in France, sparking riots. In the actual paper, we had some good ads this week. We'll have pics of those on the website. Uh, And from those, I learned that Macy's once had its own brand of scotch. Sure. There was also an ad taken out by, quote, the overseas Chinese opposing the communist Chinese regime in the form of an open letter to Teng Xiaoping. And an article about how much money AT&T, then the world's largest company, made from the Yellow Pages. Quote, the most widely read book in the country is not the Bible nor the dictionary. It's the Yellow Pages. Kids, ask your parents. Mamie Eisenhower is vindicated. The editor of the papers of Dwight David Eisenhower said today that suggestions that Eisenhower wanted to divorce his wife Mamie at the end of World War II and marry an Englishwoman are untrue. I am very relieved. There's a food section that I have never noticed before, which doesn't mean it wasn't there. Uh, I I skim. Um, It's by Craig Claiborne, which is one of those names uh, that, you know, was around that we definitely had his cookbooks in my house. I may still have one in my house now, actually. It featured recipes for carrot cake and eggnog. And I would make these like these are not horrifying 1979 recipes, unless you find eggnog horrifying. Which, yeah, I maintain that it is spoiled melted ice cream. You do you. I maintain that you should try real eggnog sometime, not the kind from a carton. Not uh, the kind that store. you sent pictures of, of just a I, dozen well, <laughs> yolks resting in a pitcher. Yes, I, I will share um, the the recipe that my friend Michaela Murphy, who I believe is listening to the podcast, uh, shared with me that uh, this this group of mostly Jews and, and one Gentile who is allergic to eggs and doesn't drink is not qualified to comment on. <laughs> um, <laughs> But <laughs> if you want to make some Valentine's Day eggnog, yeah, luck. this is a timely conversation. We're having it not when you're listening to it, but uh, I will share Michaela's recipe. It is uh, amazing uh, in the end, h- horrifying while it's happening. Uh, I'll <laughs> leave it at that. Go to our website. It'll be there. You can make some in January or February. And, um, and, and just trust me, it's, it's real good. <laughs> 
On the Cashbox pop charts, uh, the number one song is La Freak. The number one album is The Blues Brothers. We have talked about both of those before. And on television, uh, on CBS, we have MASH and WKRP in Cincinnati, followed by a TV movie, The Corn is Green, starring Katherine Hepburn, directed by George Cukor, and based on the 1938 play by Emlyn Williams about a school teacher in a Welsh coal mining town. There was also a 1945 film version starring Betty Davis. This was the 10th and final collaboration between Cukor and Hepburn, and it was nominated for two Emmys. Weirdly, the newspaper, the TV section in the paper, the scan was really bad this week, so um, I couldn't actually get a lot out of it. You're welcome. But there was an ad for ABC World News Tonight with the headline, How Can You Stay Afloat in 1979? with a cartoon of people on a dollar sign floating in the water surrounded by sharks. So this was a thing that came up in the last episode. Um, you know, the economy in 1979. Bad, apparently. NBC had Backstairs at the White House Part 1. How many fucking parts are there to this thing? I like, believe four. It just I think feels like it's been every week. Yeah, <laughs> I think for we're each done. <laughs> <laughs> I think it was four, and I think we've hit them all now. Right, because I mean, we're going out of order, and then there were weeks that didn't have it because of our order. So like we've, we've gone ahead and then back again. I think we're done. <laughs> I hope we're done. This yeah. is what it felt like trying to watch it on DVD. So... <laughs> Also of note, outside of our um, primetime Big Three networks, Channel 5 was showing All About Eve. That sounded like actually the best thing on tonight, based on the rest of this. At 7.57, Channel 50 had the lottery drawing. I- I've never noticed that in the in the listings before, and it, it felt just noteworthy as a weird thing. And relevant to our news headlines on PBS on Channel 13 here in New York, America entertains Deng Xiaoping spelled completely differently from the way it is spelled everywhere else, and Jimmy Carter at a live performance from the Kennedy Center. Among those appearing, Dick Cavett, John Denver, the Joffrey Ballet, the cast of Broadway's Yubi, that seems real random, Rudolph Serkin, plus some surprises. That is exactly how it is written in the ad. Uh, it is sponsored by Arco, the gas station, or the you know oil and gas company, I suppose. And it is just like this stark white, like black text on a white background. Nothing else. The only image on the entire thing is the Arco logo. It's real weird. Seems like it was thrown together in a big hurry. Like this episode. Like this episode. <laughs> I've had the corn is green. Uh, t- to the tune of Blondie's The Tide is High stuck in my head for the last two minutes. <laughs> oh, if only. The corn is green, but I'm moving on. Hey, we have a real treat tonight because our very special guest star is one of the world's most beautiful and talented ladies, Miss Elka Summer. Elkie Summer. Miss Elka Summer. Elkie's the wonderful Miss Elka Summer. Elka Summer. Elkie Summer. Elka Summer. <laughs> Well, that answers that question. (laughs) (laughs) Gosh, how to follow that. Elke Zama is a German actress, born Elke von Schletz in 1940 to an aristocratic family. She left Germany after graduating high school to be an au pair in the UK. Shortly thereafter, while on holiday in Italy, she was discovered by Italian filmmaker Vittorio De Sica. She changed her last name to Zama began appearing in films, and soon found herself a popular pinup girl in magazines, including Playboy. Her breakthrough year in the U.S. was 1964, when she appeared in A Shot in the Dark, the sequel to The Pink Panther, starring Muppet Show guest star Peter Sellers, and in The Prize with Paul Newman and Edward G. Robinson, 
for which she won a Golden Globe Award for Most Promising Newcomer. In addition to her film work, she was a frequent guest star on television. I know her primarily from her appearances on Hollywood Squares, but she was also a familiar face on both Dean Martin and Johnny Carson shows. Around the time she appeared on The Muppet Show, she had just wrapped The Prisoner of Zenda, another film with Peter Sellers, which would premiere in May and basically mark the end of her film career. Elka shifted her focus to other artistic pursuits, including painting, singing, and, in 1989, co-hosting the television series The Exciting World of Speed and Beauty. That speed is in race cars, not methamphetamines, although one imagines there might be some overlap. <laughs> and Sorry, is that a single show? It was a single show. It's, it's The it was, Exciting World of Speed and Beauty, yeah. not The Exciting World of Speed and Beauty. Nope, As one Beauty show. and okay. Beast, but Great. Beauty and the Exciting World of Speed. She co-hosted it with a football player whose name I do not remember because he was not one of the like three football players I've heard of. Tales all this time. Prior to that, though, she made a consequential appearance on Circus of the Stars, which we've talked about, I believe, on this podcast in the past. Oh, yes. And so for this, I'm just going to quote you from Wikipedia. Zama was embroiled in a long-running feud with Zsa Zsa Gabor that began in 1984 when both appeared on Circus of the Stars. This had escalated into a multi-million dollar libel suit by 1993, resulting in Zama being awarded $3.3 million in damages from Gabor and her husband, Frederick von Anhalt, for defaming her in interviews published in a pair of German publications in 1990. Uh, I have vague memories of this being reported on on like Entertainment Tonight when I was a kid. Sorry, I'm going to need more information. <laughs> yeah. What what was the feud about? I don't know. Don't remember. This is what I found and did not go and search for more. Clearly, Jasha Gabor didn't like Al Ghazamar and started talking shit about her in the press. I, I don't I don't really know more. Anyway, she's still around. She's 82 years old, presumably retired, living in LA. Uh, does anyone have any memories of her? One's a racing car. One's <laughs> Elka so much. Nope. <laughs> Beauty and <laughs> uh, Okay, from Los Angeles Times in 1993. Yeah, I'm on the same. <laughs> If it please the court, let us stipulate to a few things up front. First, Zsa Zsa Gabor does not look so fat that it would take three or four strong men to lift her onto a horse. And also, Zimmer does not resemble a bald-headed Hollywood has-been who hangs out in CD bars and has to sell hand-knitted pullover sweaters to eke out a living. <laughs> but this still doesn't explain what the... I think that's what they had said about each other. Yeah, it sounds like they were sniping each other on the show, I guess on the air. Zoma remembered watching Gabor mount a horse backstage and commenting, poor horse. <laughs> Jeez Louise. I have, there are tears on my face right now. So, so this is interesting because it sounds like Zoma was the one who started it, but she was also the one who ultimately won because she just said something shitty, but like within the confines of a space that they were both in. Whereas then Jaja went to the press and talked about it. And that's that's where the libel comes in. All I know is I hope that this is the next like Ryan Murphy feud miniseries. I'd watch it. Yeah, absolutely. Who would you cast? Who would play them? <laughs> <laughs> Which one is Sarah Paulson? <laughs> I mean, Sarah Paulson has to be Elka Summer, right, right? Right. Yeah. And like, I- I'm picturing um, Jennifer Coolidge as John Hagelbore. Yeah, or I mean, Lily Ray would be more of an Elka Summer type, really. 
who else was on the episode? Because really, this could be this could if you could just the entire pilot is just a full restaging of Circus of the Stars. Oh my goodness! The whole Ryan right Murphy stable. Get Ryan on the phone. Why don't you get me Oh, someone else made this list, and I'm first. Adam, what were my overall impressions? Of the <laughs> um, it's I, you know, this episode is fine. Uh, we've been talking off mic about uh, really disliking it, and I mean, like. Eh in comparison to some others like it's fine it's inoffensive there were some parts of it i really liked there's a lot of the baby muppets as opposed to the muppet babies in it and boy do i hate them so that's a problem for me and um i wish i hadn't said last time you know that i was like i felt bad for leslie uggams not getting enough to do because elkazama really doesn't get a lot to do i don't feel the same way about her that i feel about leslie uggams but you know, sort of same idea. Like, I, I wish that she had more to do because, meh, Michal. That was yeah, a rambling somehow. answer. I don't like going first. Michal, how about you? Uh, somehow she's on screen a lot, and yet it feels like she doesn't do that much. Well, she does the same song, same song three times. That might be why. That's true. Well, I think we've all also probably blocked out the scene where she's just horrendous to Miss Piggy. Uh, I no, haven't yeah. that was actually one of the things that I liked. <laughs> Well, we'll talk about we'll get it. There. Yeah. Okay. I I put this in my barely okay category in my rankings of Muppet Show episodes. It is near the top of the barely okay category, but it's still, you know, in the in the lower half as far as my rankings go. This this is a strange episode. There are a lot of kind of just like Muppets hanging out. Even within the sketches, Gonzo and Elka are just hanging out, and Miss Piggy and Link Hogthrob are just hanging out. It feels strange and unscripted, and it some of it feels kind of latter-day Muppets in, in that the joke is kind of the Muppets are unhinged and unreliable, and you're not sure what strange things they might do, and then there's not much joke there. And I, I can see where somebody might enjoy just hanging out with Muppets who are just inventing their lines as they go along. But yeah, this looser and more improvised feeling doesn't feel very satisfying for me. Also, there are a lot of babies. Christy? Yeah, it's a mess. But I didn't hate it. In fact, I suspect that I liked a couple parts of it significantly more than the rest of you did. I, I don't hate the babies. And we'll we'll get into that. But yeah, I mean, overall, it's not great, but I don't think it's bad necessarily either. And that is probably colored by the fact that we've had some real clunkers lately. David? I'm with Christy. When Michal was talking about this being at the top of her, like, eh, I guess it's okay list, I would put this at the bottom of the, eh, it's fine, uh, which is my category just above that. So, (laughs) (laughs) fine gradations. Elka Summer, 15 seconds to curtain, Miss Summer. Uh, thank you, Scooter. Uh, listen, I hate to complain, but <clears throat> there's a man eating my makeup table. I'm terribly sorry. Fred, you're supposed to eat the wardrobe. Sorry. Maybe I just blocked this out. Okay, that, that was the joke. There is a whatnot named Fred. He's supposed to eat the wardrobe, and he's eating the makeup table. That really does feel very Latter-day Muppets to me. It feels like it's an indication of what we're going to get for the rest of the episode. 
It's just weird that Fred is a person and not a monster. Right. Which I guess is what makes it, and picture the air quotes, funny. (laughs) If it were a monster, it would be funny, actually. If the monster's job was to eat the wardrobe, that wardrobe has caused some damage on some guest stars. I like, you know, I, I didn't, it's funny that you guys read it as his job. Right, because I didn't interpret it as it's his job to eat the wardrobe. I read it as like they've just made this deal with Fred, like that Fred's gonna Fred's gonna Fred, and they're like, well, okay, if you have to, but you can eat, <laughs> eat the wardrobe, not the makeup table. <laughs> I don't know See, why. That's funny. That's, I mean, <laughs> <laughs> thank you. <laughs> None of that information is anywhere in this three second scene, but that's just what my brain did, and therefore I thought it was funny. Fred actually has a deep inner life. Yeah, that's fair. Head cannon accepted. Anyway, Fred's our Muppet of the Week. <laughs> <laughs> he's Fred- a little whatnot. And he's like, he's got pieces of the of the table and he's got a makeup brush. <laughs> and he's like brushing them before he eats them. I don't know if that's to clean them off or it's if it's like a garnish of some kind. They've given this more thought than they give a lot of these cold opens. And I'm not mad about it. All right. Or maybe I've given it more thought than, than they've <laughs> given a lot of these cold opens. <laughs> Elsewhere in the intro, as we have discussed, there is a baby infestation on The Muppet Show today. Statler and Waldorf's box is ground zero for the infestation. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know why it was funny the second time. Yeah, maybe, maybe we haven't watched these babies enough times. Maybe that's our problem. Gonzo blows his trumpet, an airplane emerges flies out of frame, and apparently crashes into the balcony. I think that the plane is specifically the Concorde, which is very 1979. I'm not entirely sure because the animation is very bad. <laughs> yeah, it's a little animated photograph of a plane that's flying. Like, slightly translucent. <laughs> yeah, they're doing their best. That's fine, it's cute. Let's go backstage. Yeah, I'm up at your backstage! Okay, so as we mentioned, there is a baby in Stetler and Waldorf's box this week, just hanging out, except for when the baby's on stage. That happens, too. It's not the same baby. I think it is. I mean, it might be the same puppet, but I don't think it's meant to be the same baby, right? Huh. Yeah, I didn't read it as the same baby. It's just a heckle baby there to heckle the other babies. Is it your kid? Of course not. I'm just babysitting. This is my grandson. Well, there is a resemblance. Yeah, but I won't be bought in Duflix forever. <laughs> Statler has a child? <laughs> An adult child? Yes. I did have to think about it for a moment. Well, so we, we will learn later that Waldorf has a wife. Did we learn in in season one there was some reference, right? Was it was it Statler who who referenced having a wife in season one? Well, we know that Statler is uh has been interested in dating some of the guest stars. That's right. That doesn't mean he can't have children. I mean, he can also, yes, he can be single and have children. He could have never married and have children, but I still, this is very new information. Anyway, there's a baby in the box. Sure is. Related to Statler in some way. Shall we talk about the pronunciation of Elka's name? I just find it so mystifying that they cannot get it right and that they're so inconsistent about it. I mean, maybe things were shot out of order, and they all the Elkies were before she was on set. I don't know. So I was trying to figure out a pattern. Because I love a spreadsheet with pretty colors, I made a spreadsheet. We'll put of, it in the show notes. 
Yep. Of when, which pronunciation was used in the show, hoping that I would be able to find a pattern. I believe that every time Kermit introduces her, he refers to her as Elka. No, that's not entirely true. He At the top of the episode, he introduces Elki. Um, the only person who comes close to the, the more German pronunciation is Miss Piggy, who says Elke. But yeah, there are a handful of each of the other two pronunciations. And there doesn't seem to really be a pattern. Like, I wouldn't be surprised if all of the, um, the you know, show logo opening things were all shot at once. And if they had not actually met her yet. But I still just feel like, like, you know, she's German. You're shooting in London, although actually everybody in Britain would willfully mispronounce it because that's what they definitely did then and still largely <laughs> do now. Just watch the Mexican episode of this season's Great British Bake Off. I just, I don't know, like, I just find it so strange. And they don't, they don't even try to get Zoma right. Like, <laughs> well, just yeah. entirely, consistently wrong. <laughs> but I also but wonder, least- Hollywood in the 70s, if she sort of shrugged and leaned into an Americanization of her name because it made her more approachable, more marketable, whatever. Or it's just yeah. easier for people. If she says, oh, don't worry about it, you can call me Elkie. That feels likely. I get it's, it's yeah. the, incons- the inconsistency that I find odd more than the incorrectness, right? Yeah, like, I mean, within it's the same character, there is certainly some whiplash within the episode of with, within just the first three minutes. You hear Scooter call her Elka in the cold open, followed by Kermit saying Elky to introduce her within the theme song, and then Kermit saying Elka to introduce her at the top of the episode. And then within that animal crackers montage, Kermit does it both ways. It's a lot. Yeah. Anyway. Uh, So if there's a plot this week, it is that Beaker and Beauregard need to build a set. You know, while the show is already on stage. (laughs) So, you know, I'd never thought about this before. And I didn't want to. Like, where do they normally build the sets? Is there a scene <laughs> shop? I don't care. I don't care. I don't want to think about this. But now they're building a set fully just backstage in the wings. This is not the well, first time that they've had to build a set for the closing number during the episode, though. Like, I, you know, sh- things happen. Like, that I, honestly <laughs> doesn't bother me. Sh- show business. <laughs> it's just that they're fully building it in the wings. Like, not even in the, like in the dressing room. I don't know. It just seemed... In the way in the way and loud. <laughs> and then it, then it raised the question of where does this activity usually happen? I guess it could happen on stage when there's not a show happening, if they're not doing it during the show. Maybe the canteen. Where do they rehearse? Is there a studio? Suddenly all these questions have come up <laughs> that I did not want to think about. But we know each character has a dressing room, at least based on what we've seen of Camilla yes. having one. And there's plenty of space in that theater. So the first place we encounter Beaker this episode is under a lampshade. Uh, he's running around and hiding from Bunsen so that he doesn't have to use the diesel-powered shaver. Since Beaker is available, he's conscripted to build a set with Beauregard. And they're both so handy. Okay, how's it going, Bo? Oh, well, it's close. We just got to saw off the braces. Uh-huh, how are you going to do that? Oh, well, I sent Beaker to get the power saw. <laughs> is that wise? Oh, sure, he's okay. He's dumber than you are. <laughs> he is not. 
So this is the beginning of what's going to be an expanded role for Beaker. Uh, we're going to see him as a stagehand paired with Bo uh, at least a few more times in the future. And uh, it struck me watching this that since Bo is played by Dave Goals, who also plays Bunsen, they already have the like built-in natural chemistry of a comedy team. And so it works better than one might expect just thinking about those characters in the abstract. I love this. I, I, I mean, I think this is the most charming Bo has been yet. It's all it's it's all visual, so it'll be there'll be gifts in the on the website. Um, but you know, we didn't clip it there. The when their Beauregard is hammering and he's trying to get Beaker to help him, and Beaker is very scared, and of course, you know, he gets hit in the head with a hammer and yada yada. Um, I mean, poor Beaker and his like ever expanding PTSD. But like, is Beaker dumb? Like that's never how I've seen him. I've seen him as like horribly abused <laughs> he's certainly unfortunate i don't think that's the same thing yeah. as dumb. maybe he's dumb for to show up for work day after day <laughs> true true knowing that if he's disguised as a lamp beauregard might plug him in to mccall's earlier point i didn't like this felt a little formless and didn't really go anywhere but i did i did enjoy the the, the shtick and the two of them together yeah it's sweet and it's largely what I was referring to when I said that this this episode felt looser and unscripted because it seemed like there was just a lot of improv going on. And when you mentioned the the quick production time of this episode where it was shot and then aired a few weeks later, it made me wonder whether like somebody told them, Elka Summers people told us that we need to release an episode in January. So we have a week to write it. And wh- I don't know. It all felt very fast. Yeah, could be. There's a bit, uh, just to, if I may be pedantic, because uh, that's why you're here, right? Um, during the, the clip that we heard of Kermit and Bo, um, and you know I love when they tie the backstage into the onstage and it feels like a real theater. We see the um, the guys who will be uh, Elka's sophisticated backup singers, uh, which we'll talk about in a little bit. Um, they walk by carrying balloons toward the stage, but the balloons this will all make sense when we talk about the music. The balloons are in the first version that the backup singers are not in. So why are they carrying them? Are they also doubling as stagehands? I just, I, I was like, I mean, oh, I think is- everything we know about the Muppet show says that <laughs> it's all hands on deck for all things at all times. Fair enough. And it's not like performers don't do scene changes. We've, you know, I just saw that happen in a very starry off Broadway show. They were moving chairs all the time. So, you know, it can it can happen. But uh, yeah, fair enough. So against all odds, Bo and Beaker do manage to build a set before the finale. Just barely. So, sort of. One final number from tonight's wonderful guest, Darm. Um, hey, hey, could you hammer more softly back there? No. Could you talk more loudly? <laughs> I don't know why. I just found that very charming. Given all of our home recording setups and how <laughs> disturbed we often are on Saturday nights when we're trying to record, maybe it just felt familiar. It, you know, it's also a real thing, like on, on Broadway, still, the, there are some things that can't be quiet, and you have to do them, like, during a lot. La- I mean, you would not be building a set, but, like, <laughs> you know, there are some, like, scene changes that that just make noise, and you have to do them during a, a loud musical number. Um, to cover it so like it is actually sort of real um in a in a theatrical way that i i appreciated 
Yeah. Just as Beaker running across the stage holding an out-of-control chainsaw is realistic. Sure. <laughs> it makes sense that it would happen to Beaker, at least. Anyway, let's talk about a, a different backstage sketch that happens. Uh, Gonzo and Elka just hanging out, thinking about what it's like to speak multiple languages, as Elka does. And they just rag on Miss Piggy for no real reason. And then Miss Piggy shows up. Enchanté, Elke. Enchanté. Mademoiselle Piggy, vous parlez français, hein? C'est formidable. Mais je suis tellement heureuse à pouvoir parler français avec quelqu'un. C'est une langue formidable. Vous ne pensez pas? Maybe this bottle of perfume will help. Yeah. I don't know how much more French Piggy actually knows than what she would have read on the back of a perfume bottle. But they're not very nice to her. Elka then speaks fake swine or maybe real swine. <laughs> she she That's swine. oinks and Swinies. snorts a lot. Swineese, excuse me. She oinks and Piggy understands what she's oinking about. I'm not thrilled about this sketch. It's true, though. She can't speak French. E- yes. They just get sort of unnecessarily mean about it. Yes. And it's just oddly written. It it feels more like a talk spot where they're just chilling and thinking about what it's like on The Muppet Show. Or what it's like to be Elka Summer. Listen, we are too far into The Muppet Show for me to phrase this as, is this the first time? So I'll just say, <laughs> it was striking to me that Miss mm-hmm. Piggy struck a female guest star, which is not a thing she does frequently, if ever. True, but I think she's done it before. I do think she's done it before. <laughs> yeah. On one of the diety episodes. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I didn't love this scene. I didn't think it was particularly funny, but I, I wasn't, like, offended by it. It's hard because, on the one hand, I think we have become very protective of Miss Piggy because of the fat phobia that's often lodged against her. But she is still, like, a pompous asshole who needs to get taken down a peg every now and then. So like striking the balance of, we want to see her get taken down, but also not in a way that is unnecessarily cruel. I I think that's one of those things where like our 2023 sensitivities aren't quite the same as what they would have been for 1979. Yeah. Like it read to me as like Gonzo was being kind of shitty, like, cause he didn't need to share that information. Right. Like that came out of nowhere. And then, but then Elka was sort of like, oh, this is the good dish, right? Like she was trying to make it more fun. Um, yeah, and the whole thing came, came out of nowhere. Yeah. I don't know. Well, it was for, for Gonzo. Well, but also she was like, you know, I mean, we didn't really set it up, right? Gonzo is like, oh, it's so cool that you speak so many languages. And, and Elka says, well, lots of, lots of people here speak lots of languages, like the Swedish chef. And, you know, we've already established that in the world of the show, he's not speaking real Swedish. <laughs> and so that came up. And then and then she's like, what about, what about Miss Piggy? And he's like, that's not real. So, I mean, he's being kind of a jerk, but it's also true. So, I don't know. I guess I wish it were funnier. This would have worked better if this was Gonzo's talk show and Elka was sitting on his couch. And then Miss Piggy, the reason that she showed up was that she's the next person to come sit on the couch. And that's why they're just kind of, chilling and yeah. making fun of Miss Piggy. 
But the way it happens here it didn't work for me. Yeah. I was stalling because I didn't want to have to listen to the babies. <laughs> <laughs> that explains it. Yeah. Uh, well, we, we got to rip that Band-Aid off at some point, so might as well be now. Is that the shortest clip of a music piece that we've ever had on the show? Perhaps. The that we've got a shorter one this episode. <laughs> <laughs> so thus far, maybe. Coming up. Great. Let's talk about the piece of music that's being rendered so beautifully here. This is a song called Pennsylvania Six Five Thousand that was written in nineteen forty, and it's a like a jazz standard. It was written by Jerry Gray and Carl Sigmund, and it was a big hit for Glenn Miller and his orchestra. Jerry Gray was a violinist and an arranger and a band leader who worked with a lot of the the big band greats. He worked with Artie Shaw, he worked with Glenn Miller, and he was actually passed over to lead the what they were termed the ghost Glenn Miller Orchestra after Glenn Miller died because he was deemed too boring. Oh. Sad for him. Oh. Not as interesting as a ghost. Was there a yeah. hologram involved? <laughs> You know, if they'd had the, the technology, I bet they would have had a hologram Glenn Miller Orchestra. But alas. And then Carl Sigmund is a songwriter who is mostly remembered as a lyricist. Most famously, he wrote the lyrics for the love story theme, the Where Do I Begin? And then um, <laughs> I can't the read it and not hear instrumental. it. <laughs> um, and then he also wrote the English lyrics for What Now Met My Love, uh, which is the song that Piggy sang in the stock room of the Pier 1 in season one. <laughs> yep. Yeah. And uh, Pennsylvania 65000 was the phone number of the Hotel Pennsylvania in New York, which is where Glenn Miller's band played quite regularly at the Cafe Rouge. And the Hotel Pennsylvania, up until it closed in 2020, claimed it was the oldest continually used phone number in New York City. It's in the process of being torn down and replaced by uh, like a multi-use tower. And the owners supposedly planned to repurpose the number, but we called the number to see what would happen. The number, which rendered in pure number format is 212-736-5000. Hello, you have reached Hotel Pennsylvania. We are permanently closed. For human resources, please press one. For finance, please press two. For general information, please press three. Thank you. There's something so depressing about <laughs> the fact that you might still need HR or finance. <laughs> what happens if you press three? Oh, if you press three, you get one of those things. Oh. Yeah. Anyway, the two letter five number phone number format was standard from the 30s through to the 60s. PE translated to 73, so it's, you know, 7365000. The letters on the phone. Yeah, yeah. Can I tell you something nifty? Yeah, please. I have just learned that the Statler Hotel Company was involved in the development of the Hotel Pennsylvania 
1916, oh. Ellsworth M. Statler of the Statler Hotels chain purchased a controlling interest in the lease, according to Wikipedia. And in 1985, Anna Quinlan wrote, Real New Yorkers who will be damned if they will call 6th Avenue Avenue of the Americas still call it the Statler, meaning the Statler Hotel. Well, there you go. That's nifty. The song was also strangely present in the 80s. Do we know why, Christy or David? <laughs> well, I mean, I have, I have two theories, which is that there was a little bit of a, a swing revival, in part thanks to the 1982 album Hooked on Swing, which was sort of the spiritual successor to Hooked on Classics. I don't know how deep into this hole we want to get, but Hooked on Classics was this just absolutely horrifying and wonderful album where they took all of these famous classical music pieces and set them to a hand clap beat. Oh, no. So it'd be like, I'm going to try to do the whole one. Um, Etc. Um, <laughs> and it was, it was a a uh, wild runaway hit, and and spawned all these spinoffs and and successors. And those were the kind of albums that they'd sell, like on late night infomercials on UHF channels. Anyway, so 1982 was hooked on Swing, which did not include this song. But then in 1983, uh, one of the first CDs that I ever remember hearing was that Ghost Glenn Miller Orchestra recorded an album called In the Digital Mood, which <laughs> were which were new recordings Yikes. of all of the big Glenn Miller hits uh, recorded digitally for the first time for CD technology. And that did include a new recording of Pennsylvania 65000. And I think that was part of why this song uh, and, and In the Mood and Sing 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 were kind of in the air in the 80s. Huh. I looked up In the Digital Mood hoping that I would see a wacky album cover like Max Headroom playing the trumpet or the equivalent. But it's just the words In the Digital Mood. Hmm. Break gold on black. <laughs> there was a, a movie uh, called Transylvania Six five thousand, which I learned today was an American Yugoslavian co-production, and one of the producers was the Dow Chemical Company, which starred Jeff Goldblum, Ed Begley Jr., and Gina Davis, as well as Carol Kane and Jeffrey Jones. Tell me it's nineteen eighty five without telling me it's nineteen eighty five, uh, which I remember seeing. I'm pretty sure in the theaters because uh, you know I was ten and uh, liked very much, and you know that used a version of the song. So I don't know. It was just like in the air in the mid eighties. Let me just and, tell you. The film does not hold up. <laughs> I, oh, I watched the trailer. We'll put it in the show notes. And the trailer does not hold up. So, like, you know, it was like trying to be a Mel Brooks, like, slash Zucker Abrams Zucker movie. And it wasn't. And I learned today that Transylvania 65000 was the Count Mobile's license plate number. So that's cute. And there you go. Speaking of cute, should we talk about these babies? <sighs> <laughs> yes, we have to. It's our job. <laughs> I am of two minds about them or the the babies are all two faces somehow but they, they just managed to cross over from being ugly to going around being ugly cute like a pug but then they cross back over to being ugly and I, I don't know if it's the shape of their mouths or the the wispy hair or the just uncanniness of them or that there's a, a smarmy smoking man who seems to own them I it's there's some concept here that I don't get of what I'm supposed to think about these babies. 
I disagree with almost everything you just said. First of yeah. all, pugs are always cute. Second of all, these babies are never cute. <laughs> Sorry, Christy, you were saying something. <laughs> I was going to say, uh, I enjoy the babies, but I think their individual cuteness level is like directly related to how pronounced their lips are or aren't. Like the ones that basically don't have lips are cute. Like the lippier they are, the creepier they are. There's one that just has like, <laughs> like flat top from Dick Tracy lips. And it's like really upsetting. So we can graph this. Is what I, I mean, I definitely think the wispy hair is part of it. I also think you know, they have the kind of Muppet mouth. That's just like a hole within a orb of Muppet flesh. As opposed to the kind of puppet mouth <laughs> that that is more of like a, a flap, and I find that kind of muppet mouth to be more upsetting in general. No matter what kind of a muppet it's on, I didn't like it when it was on the African masks. I don't care for it on the Sphinx that we're going to see later, uh, and I think it's particularly horrifying on the babies. Like a circle in a spiral, like a hole with an orb. Um, so. <laughs> <laughs> I just don't I, they ju- I like Jim Henson had children at this point he knew what babies look like this is not what babies look like uh, it's shocking to me that this design predates Cabbage Patch Kids because this is sort of what Cabbage Patch Kids look sort like sort of except that these babies you come away with the impression that they're wrinkled even though they're not, right? Like, I don't think there's anything. It's maybe because of the way the the Muppet flesh moves when, they, when, when they're making expressions. But, like, uh, they, they lack sort of that shiny baby face that a Cabbage Patch Kid has. But otherwise, they have a lot in common. In the interest of saying something nice, mm-hmm. uh, once again, Force Perspective is our friend. Uh, because I don't think these baby puppets are actually very much smaller than your average Muppet, like a, like a Gonzo or a Kermit, right? That's a, an adult hand still has to fit inside them. And so whenever we see them, Bobby Benson is downstage of them. Not whenever we see them, but many times that we see them, Bobby Benson is downstage, they are upstage, which makes him look much larger than them, which is just a, a nice touch. So yay, the magic of television and puppetry. Boo the babies. No. <laughs> Am I the only one who thinks that Bobby Benson kind of looks like Abe Vigoda? No, that is spot on. <laughs> Thought he looks like an older, washed up Wayne. <laughs> yeah, that too. And that's also adding to the creep factor. Like they have made the creepiest possible <laughs> character in Bobby Benson. Just like creepy looking. And with the cigarette, perpetual. Which, by the way, in our tracking of the um, disclaimers and warnings before the episode, no smoking warning before this episode. But at the end, for, or at least that's the how it end? came up for me, as the episode was ending, there was a tobacco warning. Fascinating. That Too late, like because you can't heed the warning if the episode is ended. Right? Let's move on, because we're going to have to come back to these I, anyway. I did like that during this number, one of the babies beats up on the other babies, and that was funny. That is funny. Um, yeah, I like the angry drummer baby. Oh, no, he's the worst one! Oh. Worst one! <laughs> Just has some personality. My notes for making gifts literally say, horrifying drummer baby. 
So there'll be a gift of the drummer baby in the show notes. Y'all can decide for yourselves. Uh, one thing I want to mention was that when when the song started, I had this surge of recognition, not because I remembered this from seeing this episode before, but because this specific instrumentation, I think, is the same instrumentation used on the soundtrack of the Nintendo Switch game, Yoshi's Crafted World. And I wonder if that was a direct inspiration or just they independently had the idea that we should score this video game using toy instruments. There are only so many toy instruments to choose from. I thought you were going to say that it sounded familiar because it was astonishingly on several Muppet compilation albums, which is how I know it. Is it really? Yeah. I think I had it on Muppet Hits Take Two. Oh. So when Adam posted in Slack when he was watching the episode before I had started, <laughs> he was like, oh, no, it's the babies. Oh, I hate this. And I was like, oh, I, kn- I know this audio. I know what you're listening to. <laughs> I hadn't yet experienced the visuals, which didn't help. Speaking of visuals, it don't help. Oh, boy. Strap in, everybody. In every bowl of soup I see Lions and tigers watching me I make them jump right uh, uh, ho, 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 Wait, 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 what? Uh, ho, ho, one, one, one second. Uh, listen, I, I, I'm sorry, Elki, uh, but um, uh, you're, you're a great singer and a, and yeah. a perfect performer. And, Thank uh, you. But, but you see, this, this whole little girl look just yeah. isn't right for this show. But why, Kermit? I mean, it's such a cute little show with little piggies and little darkies and not to even mention little froggies. <laughs> uh, yeah, but you see, we try to appeal to adults. I mean, oh. we're, we're very suave, sophisticated duckies and piggies and froggies. Oh, gee. Yeah, well, gee, I got the whole thing all wrong. Do you think I could get a chance to do it again? Animal crackers... In my soup, monkeys and rabbits loop the loop. Gosh, oh gee, but I have fun swallowing animals one by one. Was it not, Kermit? I mean, wasn't that sophisticated enough? I gave it everything I had. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, well, uh, that's true, uh, but it's just, it's just, well, it's not the way that uh, we would do it. I mean, you people? Mm-hmm. Well, how would you people do it then? Oh, well, would you like to do it our way? Sure, we'd like to do it your way. That's what I'm here for. Oh, wow. Uh, brave girl. In every bowl of soup I see Lions and tigers watching me I make them jump right through a hoop Those animal crackers in my soup when I get hold of the big bad wolf, I just push him on the Mm-hmm. Yeah. Anyone else have Marisa Berenson flashbacks during this? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, that's my, my biggest problem with this is that, that everything Kermit says is untrue. It's exactly how they would do it and have done it. Should we explain what's going on on stage? Oh, I suppose. I mean, the first two were kind of self-explanatory, but the third one definitely requires some explanation. <laughs> In the first segment, the the first iteration of the song is Elka Zummer made up in little girl drag, like Shirley Temple. 
which the song is a Shirley Temple song. We'll get into it. Um, the second version, she's decked out like like a like a 1930s movie star, like Marlena Dietrich, and uh, very sexy and glamorous. And then the last one, <laughs> she's like her like head is like chroma keyed on top of a uh, boss man, and it's very bizarre. But I sort of love this. I mean, I laughed very hard, at least at the second iteration. <laughs> I mean, part of it is this is I I think it's a terrible song. This, but let's talk about the song. Let's talk about the song. The song is called "Animal Crackers in My Soup," and it was introduced by Shirley Temple in a movie called Curly Top in 1935. It was written by Irving Caesar, Ted Kohler, and Ray Henderson, and it made your hit parade the chart of the time, but. It was only a minor hit compared to Shirley Temple's other big song of that year, which was On the Good Ship Lollipop, which hit number two for the year. Number two for the year. It was a, a number one hit for a few weeks. And here I have to admit that I looked it up and it turns out Despacito was actually the number two song. Oh, no. Into 2017. Uh, number Bonus one corrections. Was- yeah, it was Ed Sheeran's Shape of You, a song that I abhor. So in actuality, Cheek to Cheek was the shape of you of its time, and Good Ship Lollipop was the Despacito. But <laughs> in my defense, Despacito is the second most watched YouTube video of all time. So I think that balances it out a little bit in terms of looming large Disturbingly, the the number one most viewed YouTube video of all time is Baby Shark. So uh, I was surprised to learn who the writers of the song were because there are three names that are familiar to me, but I didn't realize that they ever worked with each other. Uh, Irving Caesar, perhaps most relevant for our podcast, wrote the lyrics for T for Two. Uh, Ted Kohler wrote Get Happy. And Ray Henderson wrote a whole bunch of jazz standards and animal crackers sounds like none of their work. So that's kind of impressive. (laughs) I strongly associate this song with Anne Murray, despite its clear association with Shirley Temple, because she had a a children's album that must come out in the seventies, but I had it when I was a child uh, called there's a hippo in my tub in which she sings this song. Took two people to write that song. Go figure. (laughs) (laughs) three good lord i mean yeah i liked her i liked the middle interpretation was confused by the the first and the last i really liked uh kermit's discomfort at the middle interpretation (laughs) that that enjoyed that 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 pleased me i mean she said she gave it all she had she's really into it she does a good d trick yeah the boss man effect was kind of cool in that it was hilariously not convincing. <laughs> like it, 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 it just was so bizarre to see her head floating on top of the boss man body. Uh, and there are two full boss men on either side of her. Uh, but I, I liked it. I mean, it was, it was unsettling and upsetting, but I liked it. Was her head superimposed onto a body or was, was her body like, was she dancing with a puppet body and her body was, Cormacid out of the shop. Her head was just staying in place. 
But they all well, were. I mean, like the background, like the backdrop wasn't real. Like the whole thing was on a green screen. No, yeah, I think she was filmed totally separately. Okay, I yeah, I tell. think part of what was so unsettling about this was that she was so clearly unrelated to right to the boss man she was chroma keyed to. Right, it, like when they walked, nobody was walking. They were all like, you know, like the backdrop moved and they were all staying in place. Yeah, that was also clear. E for effort all around, but also disturbing. You know, I don't think this show is suitable for children. I don't think this show is suitable for anybody. (laughs) I like that baby. (laughs) It looks the same as the others, though. It's more wisecracking. I mean, yeah. Anytime. (sighs) So, I regret to inform you that the UK spot of this episode is more of the same. Here's the thing. I think the babies Mm -hmm. are, are a good bit. I, I really do. I think it's funny. Why do we have to get it twice in the same episode? Yeah. Like, give, th- throw this in as the UK spot three episodes from now, and it'll hit so much harder. Anyway. Were uh, we punishing th- the British for something? <laughs> Always. So this is a song called Tuxedo Junction that was written by Erskine Hawkins, Bill Johnson, and Julian Dash. And when there are lyrics, they're by Buddy Fine. And... It was introduced by Erskine Hawkins and his orchestra, but it was later recorded by Glenn Miller and his orchestra. And the the Erskine Hawkins version went to number seven. The Glenn Miller version went to number one. And this was having a moment in the 70s, thanks to Manhattan Transfer. Oh. Yeah. Yeah, I've heard that version. Uh, David, you mentioned this a little bit uh, about the video game, but I I realized listening to this a second time it's not just the babies who creep me out it's like the whole package it's it's the baby voices the whole pitch of them and then because they're playing this combination of instruments like the it's kazoo slide whistle toy piano and then just whatever the hell they're banging on it's just like a complete nightmare package and i hate it so much (laughs) i i don't quite know what the babies could do that would be better because I, I do just like the visual and I do just like their voices. But they could play real instruments. They could play real instruments <laughs> or they could do a sketch of some kind. No, what I loved when I was this age uh, was the babies in um, Free to Be You and Me, which are not handsome puppets, but they're kind of similar. And, you know, they're voiced by Marlo Thomas and Mel Brooks. Like, so they, right, they don't, so what we need is Marlo like Thomas this, and Mel Brooks. Right? And, and, and so, yeah, that's part of it, I think. It, uh, just all of it. It just sounds so unpleasant. I do like the instrumental better. When they, when they don't have to sing, this is just more palatable to me. They could also do numbers that made sense for babies to do them, but maybe that then gets a little too far away from the joke. But, like, it would be fun to watch three of these babies do the number triplets from the bandwagon. Is it also that we're getting two big band numbers from them? Like, like... If we'd gotten... If they had done the, both sides now for their second number. Yeah. Or if they had done, do you think I'm sexy? 
<laughs> it would actually be really funny if they all did songs that were specifically for old people. So if they did like a very good year, I'm still here. September song. Time in a bottle. Let's move on. Oh, let's. Our closing number is a repeat song. Row, row, row. Way up the river he would row, row, row. A hug he'd give her, then he'd kiss her now and then. She would tell him when. He'd fool around and fool around and then they'd kiss again. And then he'd row, row, row. A little further he would row. Oh, how he'd row. And then he'd drop both his oars, take a few more encores, and then he'd row, row, row. I don't get it. Uh, so yeah, this was a Wayne and Wanda number in season one and you know, we didn't get enough of it to realize how dirty it is, but it's, it's an old song. It's a song called row, row, row. The music was written by James V Monaco and the lyrics were written by William Jerome. And it was in the Ziegfeld Follies of 1912. So shout out to the public domain and James V Monaco wrote the music for you made me love you. I didn't want to do it. Didn't want to do it. Didn't want to do it. And William Jerome was a minstrel show writer and performer. And I didn't necessarily want to dig too deep on that, but I did discover that he was one of the the many songwriters whose songs got interpolated into the original Broadway version of the wizard of Oz, a thing I did not know existed in 1902. There was a Broadway musical spectacular adaptation of the wizard of Oz that toured for a while and it's fallen into obscurity, but uh, apparently there there is a recording available. And also Christy, I can't believe you don't know about this. The most salient detail to share is that uh, in place of Toto, there was a cow. (laughs) What? Sure. There's a very charming version of row, row, row in a 1950 film called two weeks with love, which was primarily a Jane Powell, Ricardo Montalban vehicle, but in the movie it's performed by Debbie Reynolds and Carlton Carpenter, hmm. uh, who are just adorable. So we'll include that in the show notes. This song is filthy. Yeah. That's all I got. Oh, yeah. So I mentioned the the horrifying face of the Sphinx earlier, but also the whatnots that are the rowers in this, I think have a different face shape than we've encountered. Oh, yes, they are Egyptian. Yeah, they've got the painted eyes, like in a pharaoh's tomb. Yeah, yeah. Their, their mouths are also a little different. And their their noses are, are a different shape too, because they're, they're, they look more like a like a hieroglyph, I guess. Yeah, uh, I don't care for them. E for effort again. I wanted to shout out the Muppet Wiki editor who who wrote the following: Wayne and Wanda performed "Row Row Row" in the Muppet Show episode one hundred and four. Their boat sank. Elka Zummer also performed the song in episode 319. Her boat sank too. It must be the song. (laughs) (laughs) Way to go, Muppet Wiki. Delightful. Never mind that jazz. Listen, turkey. What? And get out of show business? Okay, there is some show business. First of all, there's a Muppet sports sketch. A hunter fails to shoot a goldfish. The goldfish is contained in a bowl. The laws of physics don't really allow for that sort of thing, and yet this is what happens. Yeah, it's weird. It's also not very funny. Yeah, it's not very funny. Let's talk about pigs in space. 
Okay. Just the bowl would break. Yeah. I mean, I, I wondered if there was like a, a shield or a force field that the goldfish sure. was deploying somehow. So we get pigs in space in two parts. The swine track lands on the planet Kuzbane. And in part one, Piggy and Link are vying for glory. The TV camera is on, and when you step out there, Link, you'll become the most famous pig in history. Um, um, why don't I just uh, step out and see if it is safe for my capitan? Oh, that's very thoughtful of you, First Mate Piggy. Uh-huh. No, Link, no, then she'll be the first pig on the planet Kuzbane and get all the glory. Oh, 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 you're right. Oh, stop, First Mate Piggy. Help! Ah! Dr. Strangepork is really invested in Link becoming the most famous pig in the world. There's something going on with those two. <laughs> There's something going on in this sketch. Anyway, Piggy trips Link before he can make it onto the surface of Kuzbane. So he falls down at the entrance to the ship. The sketch ends in an unexpected cliffhanger. And then even more unexpectedly, after an, another number, the UK spot from the babies, Pigs in Space resumes with part two. And the mystery is solved. Nobody gets to be the most famous pig in the world because the camera broke. And Piggy just kind of informs this to Link. We never really find it out. It's just such an extreme version of telling rather than showing that it all feels like a weird improv game. We must find out if there is life on Kuzbane. What? You mean, you mean like, uh, you mean like little green monsters? I don't know, but we must find out. Oh, well, uh, yoo anybody here? Oh, uh, no, let's go home. Oh, oh, is my captain afraid? Oh, me afraid? Well, uh, of course not. Yoho! Oh! I think one of the reasons that this episode feels so kind of shaggy is the things that feel the loosest are pigs in space and all of the Beauregard stuff. And I think it's because it's kind of the same joke. It's like Beauregard's real dumb and Link's real dumb, you know, like, you know, in a way I feel like but it's hitting the same beat. One of is dumb on earth and the other <laughs> is dumb in space. Possibly in the future. <laughs> So they're dumb on two separate timelines. <laughs> I hadn't considered that. You're right. I do want to note that in that clip we just heard, uh, Link jumps into Piggy's arms and has really great legs. I wondered if they were Piggy's legs. Like, they, <laughs> they can't be attached to the puppet all the time. So maybe those right? were just the pig legs they had handy. Maybe. I don't know. Somebody sculpted the hell out of those legs. And also he's wearing Converse All-Stars. <laughs> Like, I had to look again, but they are definitely, I mean, obviously, they are they were made for the puppet, but they were definitely modeled on Converse All-Stars, but they are also kind of like sparkly, like space Converse All-Stars. Not how spacesuits work, but very cute. <laughs> I mean, they also say that they're there to learn whether there's life on Kuzbane, and then Dr. Strangepork uh, consults his life-detecting computer pack, concludes that life can't exist on the planet Kuzbane, <laughs> and they leave. Instead of suffocating. So the, <laughs> right, the gravity right. of it doesn't make sense. The impossibility of life 
but also them breathing doesn't make sense. Also, Coosbane is teeming with life. Yeah, oh, it's very habitable. They just I mean, don't realize. Never mind that, like, you know, this has been reported on television. You know, maybe yeah. they, the tapes have been, maybe, I mean, maybe Pixel Space is set in the future and, you know, they both have, that somehow the, the, the evidence has been lost and some horrible apocalypse has occurred on Kuzbane since. Yeah, the Kuzbanians and the Foods have each other and. Yeah. And all that's left are these rocks named George and Martha. George, wake up. I think I hear prowlers. Oh, Martha, go back to sleep. Wow, George Rock seems deeply unpleasant. <laughs> the hills are alive with the sound of music. <laughs> well, that was an episode. Does anyone have anything left to say about it? Well, we do have our traditional final clip, which normally is the end of the show, but I think we have to talk about this one. Is he a bouncing baby boy? I don't know, but we're high enough up to find out. <laughs> Going out Gallagher style. They killed that baby. They didn't kill that baby because you know the Muppets don't die when you... Okay, but Muppets back. don't normally get a sound effect like that when you throw them off a balcony. They killed that baby. Thanks for listening to this episode of Muppeturgy. Join us in two weeks for a discussion of the Sylvester Stallone episode of The Muppet Show. You can find us on whatever social media still exists at this point at Muppeturgy or on the web at Muppeturgy.com. Don't forget to check out Muppeturgy.com slash store for some great merch. Our theme music was composed and performed by Christy Bauer. Our show logo was created by Tom Ryan Backus. And this episode was edited by me, David Levy. I'm going to rescind my control F comment. It's F to pay respects. I don't think I understand. They killed the baby. F to pay respects. I've thought about it. I still don't understand it. (laughs) This don't make any sense at all.